simply another word for a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. And he wrote this letter to teach Timothy how to pastor a church. And the church that he's pastoring is in a city called Ephesus, which is a modern-day Turkey. So if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul is writing, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your order for the church. And I pray that you would give me an anointing to share that order with precise, anointed, compelling instruction. Oh, Lord. And I pray my friends now would have grace to hear with faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are two words that are very important as we begin to consider what this passage says. One is called complementary. Complementary. If you look on your notes, you will notice that that word, or a derivation of that word, is used in the first paragraph under point number one. Actually, the word that is used there is complementarian. But prior to reading that, I'd like to talk to you about the word complementary or to complement. If you'll notice, that word is spelled with an E rather than an I. So it is C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. Complementary. It differs from the word to complement, spelled with an I. If I'm going to compliment you, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T, I'm going to say, good job. I'm going to give you a compliment. I'm going to thank you for something that you would bring to the table. But if something is complementary with an E, it means that it's going to fit with something else in such a way as to make up for any lack. You see the difference? This morning, we want to talk about complementary. And we want to talk about complementary in light of the roles that men and women fulfill 
before God. As a matter of fact, as I looked up the word complementary in the dictionary, here are some definitions. Something is complementary when it serves to fill out or complete. Complementary is when there is a mutually supplying each other's lack. Complement. Something that complements makes up a whole or brings to perfection. This is the quality that is needed to make something whole. When either of two parts complete the whole or mutually complete each other. Finally, complement. Something that fills up or completes. And it comes from the Latin complere, which means to fill up or complete. So what are we talking about? Well, the title of this message might give you a hint. The title of the message is Back to the Beginning. Back to the Beginning. And so as we consider 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, we must go back to the beginning, and that is back to creation. When God made Adam and Eve, and we must understand something, God made them to complement each other so that together they would reflect his image. That's a key, key thought as we take a look at this passage. God made man and God made woman in such a way that they would complement each other. John Piper would say it this way. If you took a list and you had two columns and you had several areas or character or giftings listed. And if you on that list put a check mark between strength and weakness, you had one for men and one for women, and that list ran all the way to the ground, and you would click off for men and for women on different areas of character and gifting, what they're susceptible to, what they're strong in. And you would begin to check boxes. Strong here, weak here. Strong here, weak here. Strong here, weak here. And you went all the way down to the bottom of the floor with their strengths and weaknesses in different areas. And then you took those two lists and you superimposed them on each other. You know what you would find? That where the man is strong, the woman might be weak. And where the woman is strong, the man would be weak. And so what happens is you have two lists that when they come together, they complement each other. They fill in the holes or the lack that one would have so that together they would reflect God in a perfect way. Isn't that beautiful? No competition not saying one is better than the other because they're not. In the beginning, the Bible says that God created them male and female in his image. He created them. This thing really goes into hyperdrive when you consider, again, we're going back to the beginning. We're trying to figure out this word complement, complementarian. 
when you consider that at the end of the second chapter of Genesis, prior to sin coming into humanity, prior to what we would call as Christians the fall, God talks about man and woman, Adam and Eve, being together, naked and unashamed in paradise. Perfectly complementing each other. Now here's where it goes into hyperdrive. Then, thousands of years later, in the New Testament, unfortunately, after sin entered into the world, God motivates the Apostle Paul to write in the book of Ephesians that what God created in the garden before the fall, man and woman, one flesh, honoring God, is actually a picture of Christ and the church. So that marriage is a picture of how Christ loves the church in that the man represents Christ loving the church. And marriage is a picture of how the church honors and submits to Christ as the woman represents the church. So, it is very appropriate to bring that picture into the interpretation of this text. That what God is talking about here to Timothy, a pastor of the church at Ephesus, is Timothy, show them the same creation order that I ordained for marriage, I now ordain for the church. Because marriage is actually a picture of the church, and what makes them both so important is that they are a picture of my love for mankind expressed in Christ coming to give his life for the church. So, this word complement is key. And having said that, I would invite you to read from the notes the very issue that God is calling us to consider this morning. And that is, we are to celebrate God's creation order for his church. To do that, point number one, we must consider God's creation order. That's what I've been doing this last five minutes of introduction. And in considering that, we must look at a word called complementarian, spelled with an E, not an I. Complementarian. What does that mean? Well, read with me from the notes. Complementarian, namely, that God created man and woman equal. You can circle that word equal. Equal in value and personhood. And equal in bearing his image. Circle the word equal again. But that both creation and redemption indicate that some distinct, that's another word to circle, distinct roles for men and women in marriage and in the church. So though God has created men and women equal in bearing his image, equal in value, equal in personhood, 
both creation and redemption indicate distinct roles for men and women, both in marriage and in the church. Now, God saved us to recover what was damaged in the fall. Because one of the things that was damaged in the fall would be the roles of men and women. See, God made men and women to be complementary. That is to say, my weaknesses are filled by Desiree, my beautiful wife. And the areas where I need help, she comes in and helps me. And her weaknesses, I'm able to fill. And there's no kind of who's better or what's better. Because God is what this is about. That together, God intended us to image him to the world. I cannot image God alone. It's impossible. I need my wife. This is a line from a movie that I would not suggest you go see. But you're all thinking it, aren't you? You know, you guys are something, man. I didn't know who Lisa Stanfield was, okay? You guys all knew who she was. You complete me, right? Y'all know what that movie's from. Jerry Maguire, okay? All right. Don't go see it. (laughs) But it's a great line. It's a great line. It's a great line. I love it when he comes in at the end and he gives her that long speech and she goes, stop, you had me at, what was it? Hello, there you go. You had me at hello. You guys are really worldly, man. You've seen that movie? Hey, the only reason I watch this is because it's sports, okay? You don't know the movie, Jerry Maguire? All right, someone will have to clue you, and if you don't know the movie, don't go see it. But at a certain point, the woman who's in love with this guy, Jerry Maguire, is played by Tom Cruise, and the woman's played by Renee Zellweger. She just says, you complete me. And she's right. I can say to Desi, Desi, you complete me. And that's right, biblically. Now, as Christians, what must we say? Christ completes me. But on this earth, there is no relationship more important than that of a husband and a wife when it comes to two two personalities coming together and completing each other. I think that's what the Bible is saying. Therefore, we take that order in the home and we must then talk about it in the church. That is where complementarian plays such an important role in understanding this passage. There is no more beautiful relationship than when a man and a woman without arrogance, without pride, without manipulation and control, without selfishness, work together to complete each other, serve each other, and reflect God's glory. There's no more beautiful thing than that. And those roles that they distinctly have were given to them by God before the fall. 
And Jesus came to restore us back to that point where a man and a woman could be naked and unashamed, glorifying God together as a team, reflecting God's glory as each one embraces his or her role in marriage. And there is no more beautiful thing than when a church then, which is the relationship that marriage reflects, embraces the roles God gives men and women without pride, without arrogance, without manipulation, without selfishness. And together we reflect the glory of God. That is what is at stake in this passage. The very gospel that the church is called to take to the world. Just as a side note, I believe this is why marriage is under such attack. Why? Because the relationship between a man and a woman, those roles that they're to play, equal but distinct, are reflecting God. So therefore, the enemy, there are three scripturally, Satan, the world and its system, excuse me, the world and its system, and my own flesh, the unregenerate, or the part of me that, that is, remains, that I must battle even as a, a Christian. All three of those war against God. And one of the battlefields where that war is played out is in marriage. So today you have 50% plus divorce rate. Today you have an attack on what is a traditional marriage. Today you would have a devaluating, a devaluating of marriage. Why? Because the attacks on God. So we must, we must recapture the biblical roles that men and women have in marriage. And those roles are then to be reflected in the church. Jesus came to restore the beauty of this, the beauty of a complementarian harmony by first reconciling man to God and then reconciling man to man. Take a look at Scripture. Just look, look in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given it at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then based on that truth, Paul then writes, verse 8, I desire then, circle that word then, as a result of God reconciling us to himself in Christ, I desire then 
Capture that then. That's the pivot point between gospel truth and gospel conduct. Excuse me. This is really bothering me here. I think it's catching on my beard. So is there any way we can fix this or do I just take it off and use this? You got it. Thank you for your patience. I'll just leave it on. Okay. Thank you for your patience. All right. Based upon the truth of what God did to restore us with himself, gospel truth, that word then in verse 8, I desire then, is now the pivot point that gives impulse to our practice. First thing it does is it tells men to pray. Because what is being spoken of here is public worship practice. How is the church to function publicly? That's what's, at, that's what's in play here. Men, pray publicly. And then look at verse 9. Likewise also that women. So, because of the gospel truth that God's reconciled us to himself, what has he reconciled us to? Back to the beginning, back to the garden, back to how it was before the fall, He's reconciled us through Christ because of the gospel. Now, men, pray with your arms lifted up. And women, adorn yourselves modestly with self-control. Not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. First thing he's, he, had, he talks to the women about and really to all of us about is modesty. But then look at verse 11. And these really are the key verses here. Because of what Christ has done, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So let's stop there for a moment. Verses 11 and 12 are the most incendiary verses for our culture today. There's enough of the world in all of us that to varying degrees, when we read this, we either say, man, that's tough. I'm not sure about that. Or, if that's what it means to be a Christian, no thanks. I don't want to be a Christian. If we're honest, there's enough of the world in all of us that we run that entire gamut. But, oh, let me remind you that God is good and that what God created at the beginning before the fall was good and that that goodness of God is reflected in Christ who died on the cross for you and me to redeem us back to the Father, to reconcile us back to that which is ultimately good. And that since he's good, we can trust him. We can trust him. So therefore, point two, God is calling us to embrace the implications of God's creation order for the church. God's, God's, 
calling us to embrace the implication of God's creation order for the church. Now, before we get to that, that sub-point A, God's order for the church, we, we've got to at least talk about this complementarian relationship between husband and wife. If you're a visitor, this might be new for you. If you're not, you will have heard this when Corey preached on 1 Corinthians 11. And for both visitor and member, it might be helpful if you wrote down next to point two, 1 Corinthians 11, so you can study it for yourself later this afternoon or tomorrow or this week. In that passage is the classical teaching that in the home, the husband should humbly lead his wife. The Bible calls that the man is the head of the household. There's a corollary to that in Ephesians 5. So you might want to just jot down Ephesians 5 next to that. In Ephesians 5, it talks about how the man leads his wife. He leads her the way Christ leads the church by first sacrificing for her, washing her with the word, serving her. And it speaks of the woman submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ. So that in both of these passages that speak of the role of men and of women, What covers this teaching is the reality of Christ and his redemption. As is the case here in 1 Timothy 2. What what covers the difficult instructions is the delightful Savior and his Diligent work to save us from God's wrath. (laughs) That's what enables me to say, Lord, though I don't trust it initially, intuitively. Lord, though the culture has taught me all my life this can't be. Lord, though I would say, how can this work when there are two sinners together? Lord, I trust you. Who reconciled me to the Father? I trust you who gave your life for me when I was your enemy. I trust you who hung on the cross. If there is ever a picture of how a man should serve his wife, it is of Christ washing the feet of his disciples. It is of Jesus who became poor so that we could be rich. It is of Jesus hanging on a cross, pouring out his blood for his bride. He never abused her. He loved her. And he served her. And he cared for her. That is the context for this instruction. Why do I labor it? Because gospel truth must inform gospel conduct. And it does. Now, here's the test. Many of us would embrace God's instructions to husbands and wives. But the real test 
of whether we have grasped the biblical essence of manhood and womanhood and affirm it as true and beautiful. The real test is whether Paul's application of this order to the life of the church surprises and offends us. That's the real test. You see, if the New Testament roles for man and woman in marriage are rooted not in sinful pride, nor in cultural expectations, but in God's original design for creation, then how would you expect this original design to express itself in the life of the church? That's the question we have to ask. That's what's before us here in Timothy. And here is my request of you. I have two requests, actually. The first one is, can someone shut those back two doors over there? <laughs> Sorry, didn't intend that as comic relief, but I've been trying to figure out for the last 10 minutes how to get that done. But I did it. That's the first request. Second request. This one is serious. Based upon all that scripture has just spoken to us, would you seat yourself before these unpopular verses and listen for a few minutes? And would you see if the story they tell is a story of God's redemption and blessing, both for you and for the church? If I were to ask the women and the men in this church whether Christ's redemption and then Christ's application of that redemption to their marriage, especially in Ephesians 5, men lead, women follow, men serve sacrificially, women seek to respect and honor. If I were to ask you, has that been a blessing for you? I am convinced because I know you. You would say, oh, Al, in many respects, it has saved our marriage. But more importantly, it has honored God. Well, now I simply ask you to consider that that creation order is applicable to the church. And this is how. Let's go. God's order for the church. We have to dip into a very key word in verse 11. If you will again look at verse 11, let a woman learn quietly. Let a woman learn quietly. What does that mean? Quietly. Some of your versions may say in silence. What is that word saying to us? Well, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek word that is used elsewhere in the text. It's actually used in verse 2. So let's go up to verse 2 and see how it's used in verse 2. 1 Timothy 2.2 2, For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So when it says for women to learn quietly or in silence, it is not speaking of a lack of speaking words. It is talking about, remember last week we looked at this, an attitude of the heart 
that is at peace and is calm, trusting God. It is actually a synonym for a converted woman. A woman who has bowed her knee and her heart to Jesus Christ. So it's not saying that women can't speak. It's saying that the attitude of their heart should be one of quietness. What kind of quietness does he have in mind? Now here's where this will challenge some. But remember the Lord, what he's done for you. It is a quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has called to oversee the church. See, verse 11 says that the quietness is in all submissiveness. And if you look at verse 12, let's read it again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. See, verse 12 says the quietness is the opposite of authority over men. And so the point is not whether a woman says nothing, but whether she is submissive and whether she supports the authority of the men God has called to oversee the church. Quietness means that we don't speak in a way that compromises that authority. So I think that's what this text is teaching. Now we've got to look at a second word, and that is, I permit no woman to teach. This is verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. To teach. What does that mean, to teach? The Greek word is didaskalin. Is Paul saying that a woman can never, ever, ever teach? No teaching of any kind is allowed for a woman. Well, he can't be saying that. Why do I say he can't be saying that? Because there are ample examples of women teaching in Scripture. First one, you can just jot this down. Titus 2. What does Titus 2 say? Titus 2 says the following. Verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So there's an example of women teaching, teaching other women. There's another example of teaching. When Paul talks about Timothy early on, what does Paul say about Timothy? He says, Timothy, I thank God for your mother, Eunice, and your grandmother, Lois, that they taught you the scriptures. So there's an example of women teaching Children, and really primarily their own children, in many respects, the things of God. So women are to teach. Women are permitted to teach. Women need to teach. They need to teach other women. They need to teach children, beginning with their own children. 
Without that, the church will fail. It will fail. Well, there's a final word we have to look at. And that is this word authority. Look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. By the way, that word quiet there is the same Greek word as uh, quietly in verse 11 and quiet in verse 2. So he's not speaking of silence, no words. Again, he's investing that idea of quiet with an attitude of the heart. But what is this idea of authority? What is it speaking of here? Well, I think what we're talking about here is actually anticipating what Corey is going to preach on next week. And that's the idea of elders. Of elders. If you just turn to the next chapter, chapter 3, the headline on chapter 3 is qualifications for overseers. Says the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. I think you can also skip over to chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. As a matter of fact, it's very important. If everybody can just look at chapter 5, verse 17, because this is really going to be the key to understanding chapter 2, verse 12 when it says that a woman is not to exercise authority over a man. Let me read that again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what do we have in 1 Timothy 5.17? We have this group of people called elders. They ought to rule well. And how do they rule? Through preaching and teaching. So I think this is how we understand chapter 2, verse 12. Eldership in a church is exercised not through the kind of authority that the world would exercise. Like in the military, let's say. Where we command people and they have to do it just because we say so. That is not eldership. That is not authority in the church. Authority in the church is exercised through this right here. If an elder cannot teach the word in such a way that it is understandable and that it's compelling, then he has no authority upon which to rule the church. The only thing that can constrain or speak to your conscience that is right to do There's a fancy way of saying that. Scripture is the only thing that can inform our conscience when it comes to faith and practice. Plain English. You want to know what to do? Go to Scripture. Scripture must be the reason we do what we do. Ultimately, the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, and his love for me, and the implications of the gospel then inform my conduct. So gospel truth, gospel conduct. But my leadership, Corey's leadership of this church, is not in what we say. It's in the teaching gift that God has given us to bring this word to bear and then appeal to you to obey God's word. What's my point? The teaching and authority being spoken of here go together. A leader in the church leads 
by the teaching that God gives through his word. So that if a man does not have a teaching gift, he can't be an elder. In fact, that's the one difference between a deacon, which we have so many of, and an elder that there are fewer of, is the ability to teach a teaching gift. Because an elder's authority comes from the word. So, bottom line. What is this passage saying? It is saying that the authority that is exercised in the church is to be exercised by men, not by women. That's what it's saying. That so many things in the church, so many ministries are absolutely essential, hundreds and thousands of ministries that women need to be a part of and do in the church. And without doing it, the church cannot be what it is. But the one thing that is in play here is an elder who has authority through the teaching of God's word is reserved for men. And again, I'd reference you back to the beautiful doctrine of complementarianism seen in the garden, seen in Genesis 2, that God is restoring not only marriages, but the church back to what he ordained. And that there's nothing more beautiful than when a church obeys God's order. We're reading from the notes. Subpoint B under that second point. God's order in creation provides the basis for God's order for his church. Let me just read this quote. It's a great one. The reason this is important, what is important? That God's order in the church is based on his order in creation. It's called creation order. The reason this is important to see is that both in the case of church order and family order, Paul is basing his teaching on God's original order in creation. Paul is not arbitrarily choosing roles for men and women, nor is he simply adapting to the cultural expectations of the day. He is saying that there is something about the way God set things up in the beginning that makes this kind of order good. In other words, true manhood, true womanhood, mesh more effectively in ministry. That is to say, they are better preserved and better nurtured and more fulfilled and more fruitful in this pattern of home and church than in any other pattern. Because God made it to be this way. It is part of his gracious design for the good of men and women. Now, I invite you to look at verses 13 and 14 as the proof of that statement. What does it say there? Paul is now giving the rationale for his instruction that women are to receive instruction submissively and not exercise authority in the church as a teaching elder or as an elder who exercises that authority through teaching men. And he says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's creation order. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I must speak to this. Going back to our definition of complementarian. Complementarity means that God created man and woman equal 
in value and personhood, equal in bearing his image. Circle those words equal. Men and women are equal in their value. They're equal in their personhood. They're equal in their bearing his image. But that both creation and redemption indicate some distinct roles for men and women in marriage and in the church. Here's, here's what I believe is being taught here. God chose to create Adam first. We believe that. That's in Scripture. From the ground, breathed life into his nostrils. Then he took Eve from his side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet so he can uh, dominate her. No, 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 no. From his side. It is a partnership. But in the home, the man is to lead in a servant way like Christ led. And the woman is to follow. And that creation order worked beautifully prior to the fall. And that creation order then has an implication in the church when it comes to eldership and teaching and authority. That is what is being said here. That is the bottom line. And I love this last quote by Mr. Piper in your notes under the appeal. I commend to you this morning with all my heart the plain meaning of these verses. That manhood and womanhood mesh better in ministry when men take primarily res- primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church. That manhood and womanhood are better preserved, better nurtured, and more fulfilled and more fruitful in this church order than in any other. I commend this to you for your belief and for your behavior, because this is the way the scriptures teach us to order the church. And God inspired the scriptures. And God is good. Here's the, ca- here's the caution. I believe that much harm has been done to marriage in the subverting of the roles of men and women. I believe that on that day that man and woman fell, the day we call uh, the fall when, when Adam and Eve sinned, I believe that Satan mocked the creation order of God. I believe that that when he stood up, he spoke to Eve and ignored Adam. And I believe in doing that, he was mocking God's order. Because the question for you is this. When God gave the commandments, who did he speak to? Adam, not Eve. But when Satan brought the temptation, who did he speak to? Eve, not Adam. And I believe Adam was standing right there, men. And I believe he just stood there and watched it happen. And he failed to exercise his God-given authority. 
And the rest is history. And when you read about God's judgment in chapter 3, what you will read is that God was not pleased about how Adam and Eve related. He was not pleased in how Adam failed to lead Eve. It says, because you listened to your wife. Men, we must lead. I believe great harm has come to marriage because we, we have failed to lead. I believe the 50% divorce rate can be chalked up to men just abdicating in the home. No time to go into detail, but statistic after statistic will tell you this. Even crime, how crime goes down exponentially. When men just lead, just show up. And we don't. And I think a corollary to that is this. I believe the church suffers greatly when male leadership is missing. I want to commend you, church. This is a church where men lead. Thank you. I believe that's a sign of a healthy church. But when churches do not have men that lead, but rather would promote women leading, I believe the result is what you see today. One example would be the Episcopalian Church of America, which is presently being led by a woman and has recently ordained practicing homosexuals as bishops. Now, I don't have time to go into all the reasons why I think that's the inevitable result of ignoring God's creation order, both in the home and in the church. I commend that for your study. But I don't think God is pleased. I don't think he's pleased. So that's the warning. The blessing is, if we do it his way, he prospers us both in the home and in the church, and there's nothing to fear. So I'd like to transition. I'd like to transition, if I might, to communion. be a great time to share the Lord's table together. I'd like to transition to Christ, what he's done for us on the cross. So ushers, would you please serve us? Worship team, would you join me up front? Church, would you bow your hearts to the Savior as we consider the beauty of redemption? Men, if you would please take your places. Let's take a look at the Savior right now. He's a beautiful Savior. He's a wonderful Savior. Scripture says that this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want to look at that atoning sacrifice right now. As the ushers come forward, <laughs> I, want to, I want to celebrate the atoning sacrifice.
Scripture tells us that on that last day, he took the bread and he took the wine. The bread testifying of his body to be broken for us. He knew he would be broken. Men, our leadership of our wives, this is the, this is the model, men, to be broken for your wife and serve her, to say no to yourself and yes to her. Here's the model, men. Pour out your life, which is represented by the blood that Jesus poured out, so that your wife might prosper in the things of God. In the things of God. Ladies, in communion, we see the picture of submitting to a Savior who loves us, has our good in mind. And when we embrace this, my friends, we will prosper. And we will be a testimony to the world around us of a beauty that's, that's really godly and is peaceful and quiet, dignified. So I commend that to you as you consider the Savior and his sacrifice. I'm going to pray, bless the elements. These men will then serve us. While they're serving us, the worship team will be leading us in a song. Please remain seated while you're being served. Please wait till all are served. And then I'll lead us in partaking of the elements together. Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, wonderful Counselor, come and counsel us this morning with your broken body and blood-stained brow, communicating your love for us so that we might bow our knee to your creation order, O God. Please, build your church on your gospel truth this morning. May it begin with a clear picture of the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.